Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today we're gonna be talking about the difference between using fresh and frozen donor eggs with Corey Burke. Corey is the Tissue Bank Director for Cryosh USA International Sperm and Egg Bank and has worked in the reproductive industry for more than 20 years. Working as an andrologist and an embryologist, he has helped thousands of couples achieve their dream of becoming parents. Welcome, Corey, to Creating a Family. Thank you very much. Corey and I see each other at various conferences and throughout the year. And anytime we talk, we always have so much fun. We always have. We, our conversations are pretty far ranging when you and I get started. So I'm looking forward to seeing where we go today. We do have a defined topic, however, so we're going we're to try to stay to it. Okay? There you go. It always, always fun. Oh, yeah, we always do. We have interesting conversations. Yes, we do. Uh, so, you know, way back when, uh, way back at the beginning, it used to be that there was really only one option for mm-hmm. couples considering using donated eggs to build their family. And that was to use fresh eggs. You'd find a fresh donor. She would go through a cycle and you, uh, the, the couple or the person, uh, if, if they were not and partnered, uh, would end up with the eggs that were created in that one cycle. But now we have a choice because frozen eggs, I think have taken everybody by surprise. It's how rapidly that that option has grown and it certainly uh, has grown. Um, Do you happen to know what percentage of donor egg cycles now are used donor uh, frozen versus fresh? You know, I've seen a number of things. I think we're approaching about 50% of all cycles now are using frozen eggs versus fresh eggs. That's, I've seen that. That's the number I've seen too. Yeah, so that's, a you know, and when did they really begin with frozen? Well, we started quite some time ago, um, back when ASRM made vitrifying eggs standard of care. We've gotten better and better since then. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the last five, six years, I guess, would be the when it started to actually take off. And then it's taken off logarithmically ever since. Every year it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, you might have predicted it, but I honestly wouldn't have predicted that how quickly it's taken on. We're going to talk about some of the reasons here in just mm-hmm. a minute. All right, but first, let's talk about what the process is for using a, doing a fresh donor egg cycle. Take us from the beginning once a patient or a couple if they're if, if she's partnered make it have made the decision that the best, their best option for creating a family is to use donor eggs. So walk us from that point on if you're using fresh eggs. Fresh eggs. Okay, with fresh donations, you know, it's just fairly standard procedure we're all used to for, for many, many years. You find your donor. Generally, you have to then screen the donors because usually most places have fresh donors on the books, people who want to donate. You still have to screen, go through the screening process with them. You have to do the infectious disease probably have to do genetic, some carrier screening, depending on what you require. Then you have to get the stimulation in line with the recipient, go to a retrieval, retrieve the eggs, you fertilize the eggs, grow the eggs to beautiful blast, hopefully. And, you know, on day five or six, you make the transfer. Now, in some cases today, we're having frozen and then going back and doing the transfer later. So sometimes we can throw out the, the, the process of getting in, in sync with the donor, with the recipient's cycle. Yeah, because I, actually now it is almost becoming standard of care yeah. that uh, particularly when genetic testing is involved, right. and even when it isn't, that there uh, that the preference is moving towards uh, doing uh, freezing all, yeah. and then coming back after the woman's body has had a chance to settle down 
from the stimulation, right. Okay, so then you just, all the eggs are fertilized with the, the sperm of choice. And at the time? Yes. And, and one, of the, one of the things with fresh donation is when you do a retrieval that way, in most cases, you get all of the eggs. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a major difference between fresh and frozen in most cases is with the fresh, you always get all of the eggs, unless you've done a split cycle or something of that yeah. nature. Unless you split it right. Yeah. And then you take the risk of not getting enough. So, okay. Exactly. So you get all the eggs and most people probably still fertilize all. Or are you seeing them freeze some? Uh, now some of the eggs are, do most people fertilize them? They used to mostly fertilize. Yeah, they're mostly, I would say 90, 80, 90% of the people fertilize everything. Sometimes they will freeze some eggs just so they don't have, you know, in the end, they don't end up with too many embryos left over. Yeah. Okay. So what is the cost of a fresh donor cycle? Well, fresh donor cycles can go anywhere from twenty to $40,000, um, depending on how much you're paying for the donor, how much the IVF treatment is. In some places, you know, the IVF treatment's lower, so you, you have the lower end. But in general, I would say $20,000 and up. Okay. And the cost differential there would be in what? What would make it go up? Again, the price that you're paying for the donor in particular, you're paying a lot of money for the donors. And, and people in New York, particularly, you know, they'll pay a lot of money just for a donor. They may pay $10,000, $15,000 for a donor that they think is a very good, suitable donor. Okay, so primarily actually, when, I, when I say the cost is, is around twenty thousand, that's actually probably the very low end. Mm-hmm. I know a few places that do a very basically a discounted cycle, and they're twenty thousand. But I would say, on average, you're probably looking at thirty thousand dollars and up on average. Okay, and so that's for one cycle. Yeah. On the other hand, you would get if you would get all the eggs that are produced, mm-hmm. and most egg donors are young, so we would anticipate. To get, it would be common to expect to get a fair number of eggs. Yes, absolutely. What is kind of the average egg, which of course it, there's no guarantee, but what kind of on average, how many eggs would you get? Yeah, again, based on the testing that we do and, and just in general speaking of us, we get about 20 to 30 eggs. What we freeze depends on the quality, but you in average end up getting an average of about 20 to 30 eggs per retrieval. Okay. And certainly there's, there's times when, when you get considerably more. I mean, I've seen retrievals where you get 60, 70, 80 eggs. I wouldn't, I hate saying that, but you know, people, wow. people who are PCOS or whatever, they often put, put out a lot of eggs out, which is not a good thing. That doesn't, doesn't result in no. a better cycle. It's actually probably worse than having a donor who gives you 15 to 30 eggs. That's, that's a good number. Yeah, I know. That's, wow. That would not be a good outcome. That would not be what you would be going for. It's certainly not ideal and not what we're we're ever looking for. But, you know, it's one of those things you can never really tell what you're going to end up with. You may think you're going to get 20 to 30 eggs and next thing you know, you've got 50 coming out. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, that's, it's rare. You don't get it that often, but it, it does occasionally happen. Okay. So what are your choices now for finding a egg donor for a fresh cycle? So if a patient has decided that that's what she needs where does she go to look for a fresh donor? Well, there's an, or a donor for a fresh cycle. A donor for a fresh cycle. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a number of ways or places to look for that. So there's, there's egg, egg donor agencies who that's what they specialize in. They have a number of women who have elected to be egg donors and you can get an egg donor that way. Many practices also keep their own file of potential egg donors to use. And usually that's how you find a, a fresh donor is through that method. But oftentimes you still have the whole screening process to go through once you select that person. So there's really no guarantee with Fresh that 
if you select a donor today that she's going to pass all the testing that she needs to go through. You could have you know, something, chlamydia or some sort of infectious disease that doesn't show up that they would make them ineligible. Okay. So now that's the process for going through using a fresh, doing a fresh donor egg cycle. Mm-hmm. Now let's contrast that and talk about what's the process if a couple or a patient decides that they're going to do, use donated eggs, but they want to try using frozen eggs. Yes. So what's the process like there? Okay. So frozen are a little bit different because most banks that are around today, go ahead and freeze the eggs. So we will recruit donors. We'll go ahead and do the retrievals on them. We'll vitrify the eggs. We'll put them in the freezer. Okay, so we've, we've done all that work. We've done the screening work you know, for infectious disease, again, genetic testing, psychological evaluation. So we've done all of this thing. The eggs are pre-screened as much as they possibly can be, and they're ready to go today. So the first part is you, you have stuff available to you today. It's right there. You can have it tomorrow. You can start your cycle. There is no work on the user's end, such as as timing the cycles. You know, that doesn't have to be done. We have everything here. You can start your cycle whenever you're ready to do it. So the process is very similar to fresh donation, except the egg banks are doing all the work. Um, It's not something that you have to... Sometimes we'll take a fresh donor, we'll go to retrieval. We get one or two eggs or no eggs. You know, we don't know that until we get there, but we end up with no eggs or, or poor quality eggs. Again, frozen eggs, you know that you're going to get good eggs every time. Okay, so how many, well, first of all, how do you know when, once you get the eggs retrieved, how can you tell whether they're good eggs or not? Well, that's, that's a million-dollar question, okay? <laughs> you know, we're, we're freezing what we consider to be the best quality, morphologically normal M2 eggs, so the most mature eggs. And that's all we're looking for is, is very mature eggs. We're obviously not freezing any of the immatures or anything like that, but we're basing it on looks because that's what we have. We don't necessarily know, you know, there's no, no magic thing to go. This is a perfect egg. This is a good egg, but we know as embryologists, we generally know what a good egg looks like. And, and we, we make sure that we freeze only the best looking ones. So if there's defects in the mature eggs themselves, we don't freeze them. We just, just look for the perfect eggs. And, okay. and again, perfect is a relative term. It's just, yeah. it's just based on the, the morphology. As long as the morphology is perfect, we assume that it's a, a good quality egg. So how many eggs, so you would get on average between 15 and 30, mm-hmm. I would assume, with your donors as well. Mm-hmm. So now you're freezing them. Do you freeze them? The, they're frozen in a thing called a straw usually. Yeah. How many eggs do you put in a straw? So how many, if somebody comes in and says, I want to I want to do a use frozen eggs for a, a donor egg cycle. How many eggs do they need to buy in order to have a good chance of thaw, surviving the thaw and fertilizing and being sure. ready for uh, transfer? Yep, that's a great question. And, and let me just clarify something first. You know, we're not truly freezing eggs. We're vitrifying eggs. And you said straws. We do kind of use some straws, but they're not truly straw devices. They're kind of a half straw that we set the eggs on and freeze. So they're not truly frozen, they're vitrified, but there's okay. a technicality. But it's vitrification, I always, honestly, I thought it was a type of freezing. It was a fast. It is, yeah. Okay. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the easy way to do it. But um, vitrification implies turning something to glass. So we avoid ice crystal formation. Yeah, ice, that, ice that's crystal. why it took the longest time to, for eggs were much harder. People don't realize yeah. this, but eggs 
were much harder to freeze than embryos because of the water content. Sure, exactly. The water content and the cell number. If you if you lose a few cells when you're thawing an embryo, that's okay. The, the cells will recover. If you lose one cell, that's all there is in an egg. So yeah, eggs were, were a big, big challenge for us to learn how to vitrify. But back to your back to your original point, most places say it takes six to eight eggs to be successful. And that's usually what they sell, six to eight. You, know, you may get anywhere from six to 10, but the general range is six to eight eggs. That'll generally end up with, with at least one good blastocyst, um, which is a very good quality embryo. Most of the time, it'll end up with more than that. But most egg banks also guarantee that out of purchasing that many, you end up with at least one good embryo to transfer um, on day five. All right. So six to eight eggs are on average what you would need to purchase in order to give yourself a fighting chance of a day five uh, embryo that's a quality of transfer. Sure. Yes. Okay. So is that what most people are buying is then six to eight eggs? Yeah. Most people purchase at least six eggs, but yeah, six to eight eggs is a good number. Six to 10 eggs is probably a, a really good number. Provided that, you know, if they're going to do PGD on the eggs, so doing genetic testing once they have embryos, people who do that often purchase more because, um, you know, they're looking for a certain sex or something of that nature, which kind of limits the numbers, number of successful embryos in the end. Yeah, okay. If you're looking for a boy and you've got six girls, that's kind of a question mark for you too. And they're also uh, testing genetically for... Uh, normal chromosomally. Yeah, with donor eggs, we should have a higher incidence of chromosomally normal eggs. Right. But yeah, that's still a concern. Um, in fact, what I see is most most people are are mainly looking for, you know, they they may have an issue and that's why they want to do the testing, or they're looking for sex selection, or they just want to check the chromosomes. But again, for me, that's not as big an issue as just having good embryos. And that's because donors are young, yeah. and chromosomal abnormalities increase with age. And right. And uh, donors are young. What's the average age? Uh, and this would this would apply to both uh, fresh and frozen. I would assume. I'm not sure. I've never seen that. There's really a difference in age. What's the average age of uh, egg donors now? I think the average age is around 24, 25. Most places take donors anywhere from 18 to 34. And 34 is kind of a stretch for me. You know, we we start to become we, we have more occurrences of abnormal eggs when we get closer to 35. So I would say most of them are in the 24, 25 year old range. We see it, We see an awful lot of college students. Yeah. And honestly, I would think an 18 year old is, doesn't have the maturity to... Yeah, that's, that's very, very true. And in fact, well, we can talk about that another time, but I'm not, I'm not a big fan of 18 year old eggs. Yeah. Having parented a couple of 18 year olds... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, maturity is not uh, the word I would use to describe yeah. most of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, try, I truly think there's um, some issues with the eggs. And again, it's just something that I, I kind of see and I kind of think. Um, I think the giving them the gonadotropins to get them there, I don't think they handle them as well as they do even a few more years of time. I, hmm. I see better quality eggs from 20, 22-year-olds than I do from 18-year-olds. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. It is. You would think it'd be the other way around. You'd think 18-year-olds would be perfect, but for me, I don't see that. And I, I don't know, my colleagues may disagree, but that's what I've seen in the, in the past. Well, you know, I'd also, I don't know, I mean, 18-year-olds have not had a, a lot of, usually, hopefully, not a lot of medical intervention and their ability to tolerate 
medications and their and discomfort and the hassle factor of donation. Right. I just wonder if they're how good they would be at that. Yeah. It's good. That's a good question. Yeah. Okay. So you're purchasing generally anywhere between six to ten eggs mm-hmm. at for one cycle. So what is the cost? Well, you know, that varies from bank to bank, but I, eggs run probably about $2,200 each and up. So up to about $2,700 each, depending on what bank you buy them from and what, what they're selling. All right. Okay. So that's, yeah. So you're getting that per egg. Per egg yes. So really with, with what, six eggs, you're looking at about 12000 close to $12,000. And you mentioned that there are, and again, this would vary by bank undoubtedly, mm-hmm. but that it is common to give some type of guarantee. So what are the typical guarantees that a patient might look for? Yeah, most banks now are giving, if they sell a minimum of six eggs, they're giving a guarantee of at least one good quality blastocyst on day five. Okay, and that sounds like a very few, but generally you get more than that, but we're guaranteeing at least that much. And and this is actually, this is something that's improved greatly in the past, probably four or five years ago, most banks were only guaranteeing survival. So they would say, we guarantee that 90% of your eggs will survive the, the warming process. Um, so we've gone from just guaranteeing the fact that the eggs survive to actually guaranteeing that you'll have something in, in the end to transfer. And, and if you don't, what happens? Um, most places replace the whole cohort. So if you had 10 eggs and you didn't get any blastocysts out of it, they'll replace the, whatever you bought. If you bought six, they'll replace six, eight. They replace eight. Gotcha. Let me pause for a moment to tell you that this show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Farring Pharmaceutical. For women who have been undergoing fertility treatment and are still struggling to conceive, Farring wants you to know about the Fertacom app. It was designed specifically to help women address the many challenging emotional life situations that arise when struggling to conceive. It goes through daily scenarios and provides tested techniques that you can use to help you cope with that situation. It is uh, free. It is a great app. You can get it at FertaCalmApp.com. All right, we're talking with Corey Burke about uh, the differences between using fresh and frozen eggs. And there, and there are a lot of differences. And Corey is the Tissue Bank Director at Cryosh USA International Sperm and Egg Bank. All right, so we've talked about the cost. So the cost is somewhere around probably, you know, uh, ten to $12,000 for a anywhere from six to eight to 10 eggs uh, if you're using frozen eggs for a cycle. So our choices now have increased for finding frozen eggs. So how would you go about, and what if you live some, you live in, in Timbuktu and there is no Timbuktu frozen egg bank, how would you get eggs? So can you look everywhere? Do you have to look within a, a geographic area? How do you find frozen eggs? Well, that's one of the beauties of having frozen eggs. We can ship them anywhere in the world. And this is true of any egg bank. It's not just, not just cryos, it's any egg bank. I shouldn't say anywhere in the world. There are some restrictions around the world, so we can't necessarily ship to any place in the world. But certainly in the United yeah. States, it doesn't matter if you live in Idaho or Kansas or, or wherever you happen to be, we can ship them to you. And finding them is, is very simple. World Wide Web. You simply <laughs> go to the website and everybody has a 
search function, you can type in the things that you're looking for, returns everything that, that they have available with the parameters that you set. You make the selection, you pay for them. We pack them up, put them in a nice portable freezer kind of thing, a, a, a tank that that holds liquid nitrogen, it kind of absorbs the liquid nitrogen into it, and we can ship those anywhere that we need to ship them. Well, anywhere that we need to ship them, any clinic that we need to ship them to. So we're not going to ship them to your home, but we can ship them to any clinic. And again, that's a, that's a thing that we a clinic needs to receive them to know how to handle the, the eggs. Yeah, well, that would make sense because they're going to, they've got to be thawed. And uh, okay. Yeah, they got to be thawed. We just don't want to be thawed before they're supposed to be thawed. So that, that, that's important. Yes, yes. All right. So with uh, fresh eggs, you go through and, and you specify ideally what it is you're looking for in a donor. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're looking for a donor who resembles the intended mom. Sometimes you're looking for a donor that resembles the intended father, or you have specific things you're looking right. for, you know, a, a interest in music or a interest in, you know, high academics or good at sports or, or whatever. So that's, that's for fresh. What type of choices do you have as to the donors when you're using frozen? Well, I would say frozen actually has probably greater choices because Again, we have the eggs. All the egg, egg banks have their eggs. So you can virtually find almost anything you're looking for. And it's very interesting because, you know, we'll have people contact us looking for eggs. And, you know, they'll say, well, I'm really interested in this donor because she played the flute in high school band. I played flute in high school band. So this, this is the perfect donor for me. So sometimes it's something like that that's, that really isn't necessarily a genetic kind of setup that, that makes you that much similar. And then... Most of the time, people are looking for someone who looks like them, whether they want somebody who looks like the mother or somebody who looks like the father. They want somebody who doesn't stand out and look different from them. So you don't question you know, where the child came from. And how much racial diversity exists? It used to be that it was you know, relatively easy to find a Caucasian donor, but a Black donor or an Asian donor or a mixed Asian and uh, white donor or Puerto Rican and Black or whatever. So how much diversity do egg banks have now in racial makeup? Actually, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, we have lots and lots of everything. Again, Caucasians are the primary ones with all of them because that's just, it's the larger population. But Hispanic populations... Cryos International has a huge amount of, of Hispanic donors because we're in an area that has a lot of Hispanics. California, they, they probably have a lot of Hispanics as well. So it just kind of depends on where they're located. But every one of us has a huge variety of different ethnicities, races, and works. The one that is really tough for all of the banks is a Asian, a pure Asian donor. You know, I see lots of Asian Americans. Um, Asian, whatever, but finding the Asian donors is kind of a challenge for all of us, um, mainly because it's a cultural thing that we just don't get a lot of Asian donors. You know, if we're even in a city where that's full of Asians, we don't see a lot of people wanting to donate. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. And in fact, I mean, I, I'm contacted all the time by by people looking specifically for Asians, um, and you know, we just can't really get enough people to to actually go ahead and make the donation. Mm-hmm. Go through the whole process. Yeah. And then you would have people who are looking for Chinese ethnicity or Korean or Japanese. And so it gets even harder, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And, and those, again, Japanese are probably one of the toughest ones because they usually want Japanese, Japanese, and that's all they want. You know, Chinese will take Chinese American, 
but they would prefer to have Chinese Chinese too. So it's, it, they are very, very specific in what they select. Interesting. Yeah. And so, and you're not seeing a big change as time has gone on in that. No, not really. Although an interesting thing that I've seen is, you know, you see a lot of Chinese doing surrogacy in the U.S. or, or just doing IVF in the U.S. And I have seen kind of a trend of Chinese wanting to use Caucasian eggs. And it makes a really, it makes a really beautiful baby, but it's kind of an interesting thing that I'm seeing more and more Chinese that are happy to have Caucasian eggs for IVF. I've heard that. I've actually heard that that is, is for some clinics say that they even see that as the majority, which honestly surprises yeah. me. Let me pause here to tell you that this show wouldn't be happening without the support of our partners. And our partners are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support for the patient community along the continuum of struggling to conceive. And not only do they believe in our mission, they're willing to put their money behind it. And that that truly tells you that they believe in patient education and support. One of our partners is Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions. They are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. And they offer an array of different testing, PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, as well as the ERPEAK-SM endometrial receptivity testing for individuals and couples who are planning a family and going through IVF. And what's really important is that they also provide comprehensive genetic counseling to their patients, which is something that I, for one, truly am appreciative of. And another one of our partners is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in the state, as well as one of the biggest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the very best possible care. All right, I've been saving kind of the uh, $64 million question to the uh, to now, and that is, you know, it's all fine and good to talk about uh, convenience and, and talking about choices and talking about ease and, and even talking about cost. but I think what most people fundamentally want to know is what is the difference between the success rates for an IVF cycle using fresh eggs versus frozen eggs and an IVF cycle, obviously that's in an egg donation cycle. Okay. Well, there's been a number of studies. Um, I was just looking at one earlier that was done back in 2010 and virtually everything since then has said there's no difference in success between fresh versus frozen eggs. If you end up in, this, in a, a good endpoint, you do the transfers, there's no difference in implantation. There, there's really no difference between the two eggs. Okay. That said, when we go back to fresh, again, you get all of the, all of the eggs from the cycle go to you. So you can end up with a huge number of embryos, which is good. It, you know, it's two-sided. It's very, very good because if the pregnancy doesn't take, doesn't carry, whatever, and you need to go back and, and do it again, you can go back and do it again. It's much, much cheaper to have a frozen transfer than a fresh transfer, so for cost-wise. But at the same time, it's also a little bit of a double-edged sword. Most women who are at the point of using donor eggs are a little older, and and that's part of the reason why they've come to us. They've they've gotten up into their 40s or late 30s, and many of them don't want the supernumerary embryos that are left over after the cycle. So, you know, if you have 20 eggs that are all yours and you grow them 
you know, it goes through a good cycle, you may end up with 10 embryos. Um, you transfer one, you get pregnant, you have your child. Um, you now have nine embryos in the freezer. And now you have to make a decision about them. You have to think about those. What are you going to do with those in the future? Do you want to want to donate them to somebody? Do you want to dispose of them? Do you want to continue to, to store them? And that can be bothersome to some people. But again, as far as the fresh versus frozen success, it's very similar. In fact, I, I did a talk a little earlier in January this, of this year and talked about just that, you know, what, how it, how's it's going. And based on some of the other egg banks info that I could gather and talking to some of my colleagues, um, the, the clinical pregnancy success rate has gone up tremendously. It used to be that using donor eggs, you had about a 64% pregnancy rate ongoing. And if you look at the, the SART stat statistics right now, frozen eggs don't have the same success rate. But I will argue that it's SART statistics are two years old when we get them. They come out two years. Right. Mm -hmm. And over the past two years, there's been a huge increase in the learning curve. So it hasn't been necessarily from the, from the aspect of the people freezing the eggs, but there's been a big learning curve in the people who are using the eggs. Um, again, it hasn't been standard of care for that long. So the process of thawing the eggs, fertilizing the eggs, and growing the eggs, it's a little bit different than fresh. And I argue that clinics have, have gotten much better over the last two or three years with that portion of it. You know, we can freeze the best possible eggs, but if the, if the clinic doesn't know how to thaw the eggs, you know, they'll tell me, I, I've gone, I go and train places and, you know, have somebody tell me, say, have you thawed eggs? Well, yeah, I did it at a, at a workshop one time. Okay, well, that's, yeah. that, that's not many. So the, the fact is they're starting to use more, whether it's their own eggs that they've frozen or eggs from an egg bank. But they get to the point where now they're starting to be able to warm eggs as well as they warm embryos, which when we warm embryos, you know, 90 plus percent survive and do very, very well all the time. Um, so I think because people have gotten better at using eggs, success rates have gone up. And I was looking at our own internal success rates and talking to some of my colleagues about the same thing. And we're all seeing about a, about a 70% clinical pregnancy rate, which is very, very good. And then if you translate that to a ongoing pregnancy rate, we should be right around the 64% that most people see. Okay. So would it make sense for uh, patients to look at, and, and, and well, let me ask, does, does the SART data, the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, which is the governing body yep. that, that collects the data. You can also see it at the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, but it's even one year older, I believe, yep. there. But uh, does SART collect data by clinic on their success using frozen eggs, or is it just lumped together with donor eggs? Yes, they're starting to collect data on frozen eggs as well. So it might make sense then to look at the success your clinic has if you're thinking about using frozen eggs. Yes, absolutely. And if they don't have data on that, at least see if they if they have a good frozen frozen embryo transfer program. That that says that they're a little better with with doing freezing or, and thawing. But yeah, if they have the frozen egg data available, that's the stuff to look at. Okay, so your success, kind of to sum it up, as as of now it looks like the success rates are about equal. And, and by success, we mean ongoing yes. pregnancy rates yes. is in the 64% for both fresh mm -hmm. and frozen. Yes. 
Okay. One difference, however, would be that if you want multiple children or if you fall into the, not if you don't fall into the 64%, you have extra eggs that you can utilize. Um, uh, or actually at this point, they're probably embryos. But you brought up a point that I was really thankful you brought up. And that is, we tend to under, at the beginning when people are trying to get pregnant, does it often feel like a problem to have excess embryos left over after, I mean, if they're, when you're starting out, it's like, you give me every embryo I can get that just ups my chances of having one or two children. And so it doesn't seem like a problem. But for many, many patients, it is a problem. It is hard to make decisions with what to do with excess embryos. And I think people don't think about that because they're so focused on just on having a child. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, think about the journey they go through to get to the point of using donor eggs. So you come into the process thinking, I need every embryo possible. I want, I want to have 15 embryos. That's what it's going to take for me because I've used my own eggs three or four times and I mm-hmm. haven't had any pregnancies. So I think that one, they, they think they want that many because they need that many. And then two, mm-hmm. I also think that lots of them just don't believe that they're going to have excess embryos left around. Yeah, that's, that's like too much of a good thing. Yeah, exactly. There, there's exactly too much of a good thing. And, and they just don't, they don't believe that they're going to have that. And that's usually mm-hmm. what I've seen in the past is people thinking just that, and they end up with a whole bunch of embryos. And, and again, they have to decide what to do with them. And that's a, that's a tough choice to have. If you've got a little child running around, whether it's, whether it's an infant that you're holding or you know, a, a three, four, five, six-year-old running around, it's kind of like giving up your children at that point. So you know, you, of course, you've got these embryos in a tank that are frozen, but the way you see them is like this child that's running around. And that makes a mm-hmm. very difficult decision for you to, to go on. And and I, I was in this business a little bit before I got into the donor business. And, you know, I can tell you how, how difficult the decision is for people. They just, people abandon embryos. They just disappear. You know, they, they go away and you can't find them again. They don't pay their bills. And the company that I worked for for many years, we, we started doing this. And we, we actually sent out detectives to see if we could find the people. We didn't want them to pay the bill. We just wanted them to say, look, this is what I'd like done with my embryo because we always felt bad about destroying embryos or getting rid of embryos. And, and probably most practices in the United States feel that way. I, I know that when I talk to a lot of most people, they don't dispose of embryos. Even if the people have disappeared or, or whatever, they won't throw away embryos because they, they think too highly of them. You know, they're, they are the potential for life and they just don't want to throw them away. And it's hard to, um, your choices are at that point to either thaw and discard. And for some people, that's not a hard decision. And, and that is you know the easiest and, and that's what they do. You can donate to research, but generally speaking, the only research that's really available now is individual clinics right. who, who would utilize embryos in their own lab for training purposes. Right. Because a lot of the places that we used to recommend that might accept uh, embryos are no longer accepting them. Yeah, and interestingly enough, a lot of them that are doing research, they're, they're looking for non-normal embryos. So if, if you have yeah, something yeah. that has a genetic disease to it or something of that nature, they'll take those, but they won't take your normal embryos because they're just not, mm-hmm. they're just not doing that type of research anymore. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yes. Or you could donate uh, your embryos to another couple for them to utilize and building their family. Or honestly, a number of people just continue to pay the cryopreservation bill because they don't want to decide. 
And then I can't tell you the number of people that I know through our support group who transfer. And even though they really don't want another child, they just can't live with with any of the other options. And, uh, And that seems counterintuitive, but it really isn't. And they have very mixed emotions about whether they're really hoping that the uh, embryo implants are yeah. not. Well, and, and many of them will do what they call a compassionate transfer. So they'll, they'll do it on the, wrong, on the wrong day. So, you know, in the middle of their, of their cycle when they're not going to get pregnant. And they'll do it just to basically dispose of the embryo in a way they feel better about. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yes, and I have definitely seen couples. It helps give closure. And that's, and, and that's worth quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So how are egg donors chosen? And I suppose in this way, is there any difference? And it probably isn't much difference between how you choose fresh or frozen donors for a fresh cycle versus a frozen cycle. So maybe I should start by asking that. Or is there any difference? And if so, what is it? Well, I don't truly think there is any difference. Um, again, I, I, the big thing would be most egg banks would have a larger variety to choose from. So that you might find something better well, not better, but bigger, whatever. You might find more variety at egg banks, yeah. you know, because a better for you, yeah. a better choice, a better fit exactly. for you. Right. Most clinics have a limited number of of egg donors potentially available. So otherwise, I don't see much difference in choice. Um, you know, most of most of the egg banks we have standards to, to meet. You know, education and and that sort of stuff. But I mean, I'll, in all honesty, if you meet all our other all of our other criteria, you know, first and foremost is that it's a good, healthy donor. We want to make sure that all the kids that we put out come from good, healthy donors to start with. So potentially that provides good, healthy eggs to make good, healthy babies. So you do you ask uh, family, I mean, most 24 and 25-year-olds are, you know, are oh, yes. healthy, thank goodness. But do you ask, uh, screen for potential genetic conditions? Do you ask questions oh. about cancer in the family we and do. things such as that? Yeah, we have a, we have a full medical screening. So in addition to being examined by the physician, we do a, a, a full background. So we ask about, you know, what did your parents, what did your grandparents die of? What did your parents die of if they are or, or not? And we look for things like that. So if, if you have cancer that runs in the family, we generally won't take you, especially like, you know, example, breast cancer. If, if a donor comes to us and she has breast cancer in the family, she's probably not going to become a donor for us unless she's done screening to prove that she absolutely doesn't have it. But that, that's the biggest difference is, is we screen them so well. So what about genetic testing? Sorry, I forgot about that portion. Yes. <laughs> yeah, genetic testing, we screen donors for carrier statuses. So we look personally at cryos, we look at 47 carrier diseases. Unfortunately, there's 360, however many they, they screen for these days. But this is the number that's recommended by a genetics committee and uh, ASRM, to, or the, I'm sorry, AGCOG, not not ASRM, but ACOG, the American Association of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, right. looking at certain things. And we screen for those. Those are the most common things that come up with reproduction. You know, but sadly, it's not everything. And at some point in time, we hope to screen for more and look at all, everything that we can test for. But some of the things that we screen for, there's also a lot of variants to it. So, you know, there may be one kind that you can do and they can test for that, but they can't necessarily test for every every portion of it. So that's kind of the quandary that we're in now is, is being able to match people with donors that match exactly like it's carrier status that they have doesn't match with carrier status that recipients have. Yeah. An example of that would be cystic fibrosis. Yes. Uh, 
So I'm sure that's one of the oh, 47. Absolutely. Yeah. Cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, sickle cell. I'll, you know, that's, that's what a lot of, you know, even in the old, old days, you know, everybody, they screened ethnically. So if you were, if you were Jewish, you got screened for thalassemias and Tay-Sachs and that sort of stuff. And everybody got screened for CF, but the screening was limited. We had six or seven things to be screened for, depending on what your ethnicity was. But again, today we're, we're screening much, much more. And I think that's something that's going to grow and grow and grow. And every year we're going to get, we're going to get closer to screening for everything. And do you think it will stay at just carrier screening or, or will you screen for, I mean, you know, there's, it's such yeah. an interesting ethical question about, you, we think, oh, just screen. It's all, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, just screen for everything. Right. But it's not like it's so black and white. No. And then you're providing information that could be really hard for somebody to, who may, the, the donor herself may not choose to have this information. Yeah. No, that's, that's the, that's the thing is we can't screen for everything. It, it seems like we could, it seemed like we just screen across the board, but some of the screening test is extremely expensive and it's not something that affects just a very, very small fraction of people. So it's not something that we can do across the board and some tests are not conclusive. So you know, if you get screened for, again, you go to back different variants of things. So, you know, you screen negative for one thing, but it doesn't mean that you can't transfer it in another form to somebody else. So, you know, it's, it's just a, a huge question. Once the technology is there, we can certainly do more. But right now, mm-hmm. I think where we're where we should be, but getting better all the time. And, you know, the thing to point out is, do you screen your partner for the <laughs> same things that we screen for? Okay, I, I'd still argue that, Donors that you get from egg banks are probably screened much better than most people screen their partners. You know, most people, oh. most people, they don't do any screening. They just have babies and, that, and it's fine. It's either fine or it's not. You know, I think sometimes in this business, whether it's sperm donors or egg donors, I think there's a, a perception that you're going to get a perfect gamete. And that's not always the case. We're, we're trying to do as good as we can, but there's still things that elude us. You know, and the more ability we have to test, the more the expectation is that nothing can go wrong. And that just isn't the case. Yes, absolutely. And I, I just actually read a, uh, a paper this past weekend about the legalities of testing like this. And, you know, there's, there's several suits out there where practices has tested for a certain disease or something. The, it was screen negative, but there was either an error in the testing or the testing didn't cover the particular strain of what they were looking for. So it's still a really, really hard subject to deal with. Right. And, and there's still further testing that can be done, and that is testing during pregnancy yes, itself. Exactly. But that's, you know, then that, that raises a lot of other hard decisions. Right. That, so, that, so people are wanting to screen everything they can out. And, I mean, the, the other thing to consider, and I don't know how many, if the donor has been screened for carrier what percentage of the donor egg frozen cycles are frozen or fresh cycles actually then go on to do genetic testing of the embryos themselves? Because again, we're not looking, we're not expecting to see chromosomal abnormalities right. because they're, they're not that common in 24, 25 year olds. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually true. And I really don't know the number that actually go ahead and do the, the PGTA or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't either. I really don't know. I think with in-house, I would say probably less than 10% of everybody using our eggs has that done, but it just depends. And again, you know, some clinics just do it routinely and other places, oh, other places, you know, it's what the, what the recipient wants. 
but it, it's usually a very small number as of right now. Yeah, because you're not expecting chromosomal, right. ab- chromosomal abnormalities, which is one of the main reasons. Yeah, and if, if you have several embryos, you have a donor, you end up with, with three embryos. Okay, so if they're chromosomally abnormal, other than, a, than two conditions, basically, they're not going to survive. They're not going to do anything. They'll, they'll abort. They won't become a baby. So, you know, it's, it's not that the end of the world to just go, okay, I have three here. We'll do the transfer, see what happens. So it's almost more practical from a, from a monetary standpoint to not do screening and just do transfers. Of course, the downside is you could have things like, you know, trisomy 21 or, or something of that nature. But those are few and far between in egg donor age girls. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing. Well, I guess that goes back to when you were saying at the beginning that uh, a lot of the genetic testing at that point is being done for families who, you know, they have a daughter and they would like uh, to have a son. Yes. So gender matching, or they have a strong preference for one gender over another. Yep, exactly. Yeah. But let's, you know, the genetic testing is not inexpensive and, yeah. and um, most people are paying for it out of pocket. So Exactly. They, I, I know of very few insurances that cover it. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even insurance that covers IVF, unless maybe there's a medical reason right, for right. it. Yeah. I mean, two different things. PGTA, usually it's not covered, but if they're doing specific genetic screening, that may be covered. Yeah. But again, for donor egg, it would be fairly unusual. Yeah, I mean, in, in the most cases, you'd have to think that it was more of a sperm issue than, a, than an egg donor issue in that case. Yeah, in that case, you would think that, right. Let's say that said, you know, I mean, even young women, they probably have aneuploid of about 30% of all their eggs are still aneuploid, but they often just don't develop well anyway, and, and you just don't end up with that many aneuploid eggs. Yeah, they're not going to. You were saying you were um, you were making choices on freezing based on morphology, but they tend not to look normal as well. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. And so, how often do you see dual donor uh, cycles, where donor egg and donor sperm are both being used? Ah, wow, that's a good question. Well, okay. We do have a homosexual crowd these days, okay? So obviously, mm-hmm. if, if they're homosexual, sometimes we will use both. I've seen that actually more with them, and I'm not sure exactly why. Either they don't want to yeah. use one partners and not have the other partners. Otherwise, maybe they'll buy more eggs and do, do both partners. But I have noticed that a lot of homosexual couples will use a sperm donor, and, and that's kind of odd to me, but I've seen that. Overall, I would say probably about 5 to 10% of all cycles that we do are donor donor. Yeah. And and I would think it with lesbians it might be more common only because they would be uh, if they are older. Yeah. Uh, they're going to need obviously a lesbian no, couple. No, actually that's or, a very good point. Yes, absolutely. A lesbian single is going to they obviously are going to need sperm. Yeah. But we're seeing uh, lesbian couples anyway making the choice to have children younger. Mm-hmm. So we're not seeing as many fertility issues. But I think it's still not uncommon for waiting until they're at an age where fertility could be a problem. So, yeah. And it's probably even more so true today. I mean, we probably have more, I, I hate to use the term older because, of course, 40 is not necessarily older, but, you know, older. Sure doesn't seem old to me. Uh, but. Exactly. <laughs> but you probably have a lot of, of, of that age, you know, to 35 to 45-year-old lesbian yeah. couples who right. haven't had the opportunity previously. You know, we just had 
exactly. much more, they much more to... gay marriage, much more of that thing. So, so they haven't yeah. had children, pr- you know, prior to this, but they, they are probably interested in it now. And that would, would be a situation where, you know, they may need both. Yeah. Okay. I was just kind of curious yeah. about that. All right. So we got a question from someone in our audience wanting to know how much are donors paid? Now you've talked about how much a fresh cycle is, and I'm assuming that uh, you, um, that, that at least part of that is going to the donor herself. But uh, so how much are donors paid and does it matter? And if so, what factors influence how much she is paid? Well, we have a set rate. So we pay a certain amount depending on whether they're anonymous or non-anonymous donors. So we pay them $500 more if they're non-anonymous. Our reimbursement rates, we pay $5,000 for anonymous donors. We pay $5,500 for non-anonymous donors. And that's pretty much uh, the standard. You know, they may end up paying a little more in California. They may end up paying a little more in New York. But I think that's kind of the range. Anywhere from $4,000 to $8,000 is pretty much the compensation for the donors. How many times can a donor donate? ASRM says you can do it six times. Wow. We have never had a, an egg donor do six cycles. Um, I, think, yeah. I think our max, I think we've had three. And even at that, that's probably the most that I'm, I'm willing to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Six times is the max according to the ASRM. Wow. Okay. Yeah. One has to question whether that's well, uh, can, a good move for her sake. Well, yeah. I can tell you, I was, last year I was at ESHRA. And, you know, I was approached by several Ukrainians, Russians, and, you know, a guy was telling me, well, we can get you all the eggs you need. No problem. We can get you all the eggs you need. Really, really cheap. And then he goes on to tell me that he retrieves these girls 13, 14, 15 times. And they're, pay- oh my and they're paying them about two to $500 per cycle. And to oh. me, I mean, it's exploitation. It really is. Yes. Um, but, you know, I agree. they argue that, well, you know, for them, it's great money. It's a month's salary, but it is still, to me, is, is exploitation. Yeah, I would feel the same way. And and although we have evidence that this, you know, that we've been doing it a while and we're not seeing a health problems, but these are not innocuous medications Absolutely. that you're taking. Absolutely, not just and just the whole process of it is just. I can't imagine going through it that many times. I mean, six times to me would be. Phenomenal. Yeah. And I have known probably some egg donors in the past that maybe maybe got close to six, but man, I can't see going 10, 15 times. That's just, that's crazy. Yeah, it isn't. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then we have the, uh, because you're not getting that many and they're being distributed geographically, you've got less opportunity for consanguinity. I didn't even practice saying very that. Very good, very good. I know, I know. I didn't even, usually I practiced beforehand. I, I completely didn't think about it. That is uh, where you've got uh, uh, a uh, two. Well, I guess in this case, it wouldn't be the case because you would have two women. Yeah. It, or, um, no, you no, could you have could, a man. Yeah. No, you could. Yeah. yeah. So, you, you know, we're, we're genetically a child, uh, two children who were conceived through the same. It's a concern with donor sperm yeah. because of the quantity of sperm we have. And the ease of donation, it's really less of a problem. It's really not talked about much with in, in egg donation. The last topic I want to talk with you about is anonymity. Is it possible, there is more and more evidence coming out that it is that the generation of people conceived through uh, donor gamete, egg and sperm, and embryo for that matter, 
there is growing concern that there is going to be a movement amongst these people for having information about their mm-hmm. genetic background. Yep. So there's, you know, a lot of mental health providers are recommending against anonymous donation. Mm-hmm. So what are the options in either fresh or frozen eggs for choosing a a donor that is willing to be known by the child at a certain age or the the adult at that point? Okay, well, I'll start by saying anonymity doesn't exist anymore. You can can find out (laughs) just about anybody. And and that's That's kind of a sad thing because, you know, people who donated in the past, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago, they kind Mm -hmm. of expected anonymity and today they don't have it. So, and I understand both sides. I, I understand the children's side and, and that and the potential parents' side. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also even more complicated than that. So we sell all over the world. And in many countries in Europe, you're not allowed to pick your donor. They have to be anonymous donors. So we offer donors to be either anonymous or non-anonymous. And we tell them straight up, you know, you're probably not truly going to be anonymous. If somebody wants to find you out, there's 23andMe or whatever else, mm-hmm. you can be found out. And it's been interesting in the past 20 years, I've seen a swing where every donor wanted to be anonymous. I mean, every donor years ago was anonymous and that's what they wanted to be. And a lot of the parents wanted to be that way too. They didn't want to tell yeah. their children, you know, this is a big secret. Now right. I've seen it go the opposite way. Now we have, I think probably about 70% of our donors are non-anonymous donors. And that just means that they are anonymous today, but when the child reaches 18, they can contact, they can get the contact mm-hmm. information. So it's been a big change in the industry. You know, it really has. I, I really think that a, most of us would, would completely go away from anonymous donors, but at the same time, we can't. Places that, that just, you know, Sweden, for instance, Sweden, Switzerland, I'm sorry, might, might, might be confused in the two, but one of the two. Um, yeah, you know, they select... One of the S-European countries. Yeah, that's it. I've, I confuse them as well. well that, <laughs> that's it. Not that I don't know where they are, but yeah, just the, the regula- yeah. regulatory stuff kind of confuses me. But anyway, one of them, they, they select their donors. So when you want to go get eggs, they've bought 50 eggs. And they say, okay, I have the perfect eggs for you. Come on down to the clinic and let's get going. And you don't know who they are at all. You just that's that's what you know about them. Is they're an egg donor, the donor that the doctor selected for you, and you don't know anything about really? them. So you don't have any choice as to saying, okay, I I want this donor to be, you know, look like my husband or look like me. That's yeah. not an option. Well, I don't know. That, I mean, I, I can't say that. The doctors may take that into consideration and may say, okay, I've got the perfect person for you. He looks just like you. But yeah, you know, theoretically, yeah. they make this decision for them and just say, this is who your donor is going to be. So we can't, we, you know, in that regard, we can't move away from anonymous, but truly I would, I would, I think that it'll happen at some point in time, but I mean, I would love to move much, much more away from anonymous. Well, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad, I was really glad to hear you say anonymous is a myth now. Yeah. Um, and it's what people don't realize. It's not that the donor herself she could choose not to enter into one of the genetic ancestry databases, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry.com or whatever. She could choose not to, but if her second cousin yeah. chooses mm-hmm. to do it, and then that's, I mean, it doesn't take super close yeah. for people to be able to find you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you're right. I mean, your point was well taken that if you think about, in particular, sperm donors who uh, in the past 
had every expectation. Nowadays, I think we're telling people don't have that expectation. But in the past, they had every expectation that they would be completely anonymous. And now they're having to face that, gosh, you know, who do I need to tell in my own family? That's something that I, you know, I'm I did when I was 22, you know, to help pay off some college debt. Yeah. And now I've got to tell my family. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you can make an agreement with the donors. You can make an agreement with the recipients. You know, you can say to the recipients, you know, not to look for these people. But the thing is, we can't make that agreement or a contract with a child. So every child, right. has, you know, they're free to do what they want to do. As much as yep. we'd like them not to track down their donors necessarily. I mean, not that we wouldn't like them to know what they're, but as a courtesy to the, to the donors yeah. themselves. But we can't, we can't control that at all. You know, if they want to go out and do 23 and me, that's what they're going to do. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I was trying to recently get some, uh, get some speakers for a conference that we're doing. And one of the places I wanted to get talk was, was 23 and me. And they, they politely declined my invitation to do so. But um, <laughs> anyway, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I would have liked to hear them say, you know, just see if they have any take on it. Um, I think it's an unintended byproduct that donors are being outed because of it, but it is what it is. But yeah, that's exactly right. But that is what it is. And it's, it is only going to Mm. continue and and increase. So exactly. Yep. I agree with you. So yeah, interesting. Well, thank you so much, Corey Burke, for talking with us today. Corey is the tissue bank director for Cryos USA International Sperm and Egg Bank. This has been fascinating. I am so appreciative of your expertise and and sharing it with us. This is a topic that we get a lot of questions on. (laughs) So let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thank you everyone for joining us today, and I will see you next week.